Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Money Talk. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the final day of the week. Friday the 11th of November, Singles Day in China. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Radio 3. In today's business and finance headlines, the latest economic data from the United States shows inflation is slowing. October's Consumer Price Index rose 0.4% for the month and 7.7% from a year ago, its lowest annual increase since January, and a slowdown from the 8.2% annual pace in the prior month. Economists had been expecting higher increases. Excluding volatile food and energy costs, core CPI increased 0.3% for the month and 6.3% on an annual basis. That was also less than economists' forecasts, and the lower-than-expected readings ease pressure on the U.S. Federal Reserve to continue with a series of aggressive rate hikes. President Joe Biden will meet with President Xi Jinping on Monday ahead of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. It will be their first face-to-face meeting since they became presidents of the world's two largest economies. A senior Biden administration official told reporters on a call, we expect this meeting to be an in-depth and substantive conversation between the leaders aimed at better understanding one another's priorities and intentions. President Biden told reporters at the White House that he wants to address the mounting tensions between Washington and Beijing, but he was not willing to make any fundamental concessions. The Philippine economy grew faster than expected in the third quarter. GDP rose 7.6% in the three months through September from a year ago, compared to a revised 7.5% in the second quarter. Economists had projected growth of 6.2%. The economy was boosted by consumer spending during the quarter, which rose 8% from a year ago. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris of Econosis Advisory and Louis Coyce at S&P Global Ratings. With a view from India is Toby Lawson from Societe Generale India. On Wall Street, US stocks surged after inflation last month came in cooler than expected. The S&P 500 soared 5.5%. So 3,956 in its biggest one-day rally since April 2020. The Dow rocketed 1,201 points, or 3.7% higher, to 33,715, its biggest one-day gain in over two years. The Nasdaq Composite jumped 7.4% to 11,114, its best day since March 2020. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index closed 2.7% higher. The UK's FTSE 100 rose 1.1%. Hong Kong stocks ended Thursday sharply lower. The Hang Seng Index shed 277 points, or 1.7%, to 16,081. The Tech Index declined 3.3%. Shares of Guangzhou-based electric vehicle maker Xpeng tumbled 9.5% as authorities locked down parts of the city following a surge in COVID cases. The Shanghai Composite Index dropped 0.4% to 3,036. 
Thursday, strategists at BCA Research downgraded Hong Kong-based companies in the MSCI Hong Kong Index to underweight, citing a triple assault from the Federal Reserve's tightening policy, China's economic slowdown and shrinking global trade. It maintained an underweight stance on Chinese stocks. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 1% higher at $93.67 a barrel. Dr. Copper surged almost 3% to a three-month high and is on track for its fourth weekly gain in five weeks. Gold climbed 3% to 1,752, the highest since August. Treasury yields plunged by the most in a single day since 2009 after the CPI report with the 10-year yield falling 30 basis points to a five-week low of 3.81%. And the US dollar index shed 2.2% to a two-month low in its worst daily performance since December 2015. The euro this morning is trading at $1.02, its best level since September. The Japanese yen has soared over 4% to 141.71. That's the highest in over two months. The British pound saw its biggest daily advance since March 2020. It rose 3% against the dollar to $1.17 against the local currency. At, it's at $9.18. Offshore Chinese yuan exploded higher, hitting a one-month high of 7.1515. The sell-off in cryptocurrencies paused on Thursday. Bitcoin rose 14% to $17,500, while Ether advanced 14% to $1,333. So, Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder and CEO of crypto exchange FTX, wrote on Twitter that FTX has an insufficient store of readily accessible funds to meet client demands and is seeking up to $8 billion to bail out his crypto empire. Around Asia-Pacific stock markets, uh, indices are soaring this morning. In Australia, the SX200 is up already 2 and 3 quarter percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has jumped 2 and a half percent at the open. The Cosby in South Korea is up over 3 percent. And futures markets are pointing to a huge rise for the Hang Seng at the open of over 800 points this morning. Eight oh nine and a half. Let's welcome our guests we have with us on this Friday morning. Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also joining in Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Morning, Louis. Morning, Peter. Um, let's start with that economic data, which has had a huge impact on markets overnight. Big risk on across all asset classes. October's Consumer Price Index rose 0.4% for the month. Economists have been expecting an increase of 0.6%. It rose 7.7% from a year ago. That's also better than the 79 expected by economists and slower than 8.2% uh, in September. And if you exclude volatile food and energy costs, core CPI increased 0.3% for the month and 6.3% on an annual basis. Um, Andrew and Louis, what do you make of this? Are we at last maybe seeing signs that uh, inflation has peaked in the US or is it too early to say that? Well, it may be still a little early to say, but at least it's a positive sign. Um, we're all still waiting to look at whether wages in the US um, you know, will 
will behave in the sense of not rising too fast because that's what it's all about at the moment. Uh, it's not about oil or, or, or food. It's really about these domestically generated wage price spirals. And, you know, if they can, if, if the Fed can contain the, that such a spiral, then maybe inflation can come down. This is hardly a Nobel Prize winning uh, contribution here, uh, Peter. But the Fed has repeatedly said uh, all their actions are going to be data-based. Mm -hmm. And of course, one month, okay, spring does not make. So, <laughs> and we've got more data, I should point out, before the next Fed meeting, quite a lot. Yeah, and that, that's why, uh, you know, it's, it's very sweet for the markets to, to, to look at, but it's equally disappointing when next number, next time the numbers are, are sort of back up on the 8%, and they all come down. It's, it's, it's not going to go away. And the Fed, uh, having delayed taking action, okay, is not going to rush and begin to, to, declare, to declare that this, uh, this is it. Okay. But if you look into the data, there is some good new, further good news. You look at things like used vehicle prices, uh, which have been a big driver of inflation. They're now down four months in a row, declined by 2.4% month on month. Shelter costs starting to fall a bit. Um, as well. There are, there are some good signs, Louis, aren't there, if you dig into the data that may be suggesting uh, this could be at last the beginning of a slowdown. Yeah, there are some good signs. But, you know, there are a lot of components in the price index, right? And I, a few weeks ago, I heard a good comment. Somebody who is a skeptic on inflation was making a comment, like this is a high-profile person in the U.S. He was making a comment about his, uh, somebody on the other side, an optimist, saying every week they find a new component that gives them hope. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, to me, the most optimistic, the, the best part of this data was that if you look at month-on-month -month core prices are they going is is that slowing down or going up that is to me the most important indicator that went down this time so mm. that's good once you take a leaf out of uh, <laughs> president to be trump oh peter you have to ask us something about the president to be trump <laughs> no 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 <laughs> Best president president elected to be oh. trump <laughs> 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 You have to ask us something about the, the elections. Uh, and that goes, he said, the problem with COVID is you keep measuring it. And the more you measure it, the more you find out things you don't like. Mm. That's why at one stage, I love the fact that the Australians produce the CPI quarterly. So you don't have this, uh, this nonsense every, every month you're looking at, uh, has it gone up? Has it gone down? Has it gone up? Has it gone down? As Philip said, uh, there, there are all the different components involved. And that's what the markets exactly are doing, aren't they? Their um, inflation data is almost like the number one data at the moment. Maybe the jobs data are a close second behind that. But what does the Fed do? It's done four 75 basis point interest rate hikes now. Does this really ease the pressure at least to slow down a bit and maybe take stock of what they've done over the last four quarters? Because it does take a while, doesn't it, for that to have an impact? Well, I mean, you know, as, as Andrew said, Part of the reason why they did four big moves was that they were behind the curve. Mm. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting now because we have a few central banks like the RBA in Australia who are taking a more, um, you know, measured approach, like still increasing them, but by smaller steps. There, there will be a time that uh, the Fed will also start to take smaller steps. And maybe, you know, and uh, the first signs of some easing on inflation could be a good, uh, a, a good time to start. That. And there is also the awkward part that uh, real interest rates are still massively negative. Mm. You know, let's say roughly they're 4%, okay, interest rates, whatever that means, okay. And inflation is roughly 8%. Well, that's minus 
percent. Yeah. You know, negative interest rates are always awkward because you never pay them. You don't say, good morning, Andrew. Your negative interest rate this morning is X percent. Can you please send us a check? Okay. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is something that impacts quietly and in the mm. background. And that, oh, you know, to say that uh, we should be having long-term real interest rates should be about 2.5%. This is a, a rather boring idea that they reflect the longer-term growth of GDP. Okay, and to get 2.5% real interest rates, well, there are zillions of different combinations. Okay, but you have to have uh, uh, nominal interest rates 2% higher than inflation. It's very simple. I think my estimate of the long-run real rate in the U.S. would be a little lower, but I take the point. Mm. We, are, we are all criticizing the Bank of Japan for its low interest rates, but actually in Japan, real interest rates <laughs> are higher than in the U.S. Mm. I so, love, I absolutely adore Japan. You know, Peter, you, you've heard me repeatedly to the point you've that you've expressed say, your love affair yeah, with the Bank of Japan many you times. We'll never invite Andrew again, because the only thing he says is, I love Japan, <laughs> I adore Japan. Look what they're doing. But it is absolutely, absolutely great. Two of the biggest economies in the world, China and Japan, are actually cutting interest rates or they're having zero interest rates. Hello? I mean, that's... that's, that's, that's so what do you make of China? China's got the opposite problem, hasn't it, now from yes. the US in that producer prices have now fallen into deflation um, and its inflation is actually less than Japan's um, now. So, so what about um, China? What does China do? Uh, well, uh, the, the PPI numbers, let's say, were not, were not hugely unexpected, given that so industrial, one, one output, down yeah, year in, year. industrial output has fallen. And, uh, Peter, don't forget, for years, PPI in China was negative. I mean, to the point that nobody, I mean, I never bothered to look at it because I knew it would have been, it would have been minus, minus, minus. But we're talking about uh, three or four or five years before. Okay, so it, is, it, it reflects the slowdown in the economy. And, uh, of course, uh, China also is, uh, is a paradise for Bible readers because, uh, you know, you have to look very carefully the exact wording of what the Politburo said about, uh, let's say, easing up on COVID, okay? Because, of course, that gave uh, a little bit of a, of a boost. And so, since China yep. doesn't mind about inflation, then, um, you know, the, the, the numbers are simply COVID numbers. And these are completely unpredictable, of course. Louis, what do you make of what we saw in China this week, first of all, on the inflation front? Is, is, is sort of deflationary pressures building? Because it seems demand is weakening both at home and abroad for, for China. Well, but, you know, demand has been weak for, for quite some time. Uh, I personally don't get too hyped up about the PPI data because that's like these f falling producer prices are really th 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 that fall is driven by what's happening in the very physical part of the economy like uh, commodity prices heavy industry and you know that that they often that part of the economy is often on its own cycle if you look at say you know the all these that huge manufacturing sector in china over there producer prices are not yet falling and what do you make of the trade data we had weak Exports and imports uh, trade data, didn't we in um, in China? Yeah, but so the import data was, you know, was just uh, uh, continuing on the same theme. Imports have been weak for a long time. Actually, to be honest, in real terms, import momentum has been improving in recent months. Um, on the export side, of course, you know, there are lots of things wrong in China's economy in terms of weakness, but you cannot really blame the exports uh, because the exports mm. are due to weaker, uh, weak, weakening global demand. 
the, the, to, to show you that you can never believe anything at all, trade balance, the trade surplus, actually increased. Mm, which okay, is good for China's economy. Exactly. Isn't it? So this is the crazy stuff. Well, wow, you know, imports are coming down and exports are coming down. And this has a positive, very small, but positive effect on GDP. But, it, but it's not a good sign, right? If, you, if, <laughs> if, if your imports are super weak, uh, the, you know, the, the, one, of the, one of the features, uh, one of the odd features about what COVID is doing to China's economy is that it doesn't really affect production too much because the factories are still pretty much uh, continuing but it 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 hammers consumption and especially the ser the domestic service economy so it creates a very strange pattern of growth one thing that stood out from the trade data um, one area if you look at the regional breakdown trade to, uh, to the US Europe fell but to asian countries asian countries mm -hmm. it held up pretty well didn't yep. it yeah i mean but that has been a feature uh, you know, all, all through this year, Asia outside of China is continuing to grow pretty robustly. Um, also, intra-Asian trade—it's rising as a, you know, as a share of overall trade. So, you know, in a few years, we will probably be looking much more at uh, ASEAN. Uh, numbers than than the U.S. Like ASEAN as a client of China in terms of export destination is becoming increasingly important. And is it also a sign that supply chains are shifting to uh, to Southeast Asian countries and other Asian nations? Um, potentially, I'm not. I mean, it could be, but I think. Uh, that would be something that is a little bit in the background right? because mm. that's a long-term structural yeah, shift. Exactly. But this, it has a lot to do with the strength, with, with you know, you just mentioned, Peter, the, Phil, the, the Philippine growth numbers, right? Mm. So uh, it, I think it reflects that. Uh, you know, the, the movements away from China, again, in, uh, let's say, Vietnam or Thailand, uh, are real, but they are anecdotological. In other words, I would like to know what percentage mm -hmm. of the movement Yep. Let's say if you have a hundred units in China and two of them have moved, well, that's two percent. If it is fifty percent of moved, well, that's fifty percent. That's quite a lot. So anecdotologically, it doesn't tell me anything at all. It tells me something, uh, you know, an obvious reaction, but not uh, that uh, sports shoes and clothes and uh, microchips are now moving out of China. The, the real issue still for China, isn't it, is, is zero COVID and how that's implemented. Investors seem to be seizing at the moment on almost any sign uh, that there might be some um, relaxation. So what, what do you make of the Politburo Standing Committee? They're, well, they're sort of talking about this and suggesting that local governments should be more targeted in the measures. So zero COVID is not going away, but they do seem to be softening the stance a bit, don't well, they? Well, Peter, that reminds me of the years when Greenspan used to make comments and people hang literally in his lips and remember he had a gruff voice mm. and he would say well inflation uh, maybe I says look and he actually a said big, nothing a at big all. gap between inflation and maybe okay things are really bad and I mean the poor Politburo put out these things and I imagine I have no idea how much of it was lost in translation but there were certain key phrases that were inserted or removed you know, yeah. and everybody's assuming that now they are, they are working very, very <laughs> quickly but and smoothly towards an exit policy. You know, I, uh, I, I personally don't get very excited about this. I don't see an, a significant shift in the stance. I mean, because Thank you. Like, it, like, you know, we are talking about a refinement of the existing measures within, you know, in, w under the umbrella of an, you know, continued 
dynamic COVID stance. So Absolutely mm. agree. And remember the, the statement that came out of the National, uh, National Health Authority. I'm not exactly using the, the correct Chinese translation for that, which was absolutely unequivocal. We ain't no moon. Okay, so, no. <laughs> yeah. So you don't think you've heard anything to, to really justify what was a 13% surge in the Hang Seng Index last week, anyway? Not really. Look what's happening as we talk in Guazhou right now. You know, huge swathes of it uh, are again under restrictions, under lockdowns. And I'm watching like a hawk the numbers on vaccination. Okay, and the fact that the vaccines that are still used in China, they are, they are all right, but, uh, you know, according to what I read, they are not as effective as other vaccines. Mm. So, you know, you have a population of 1.8 billion, of which 86%, I understand, of the over, eight or over, over 70, 70s are vaccinated, and this would be nearly 100%. You see, the, 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 the percentage numbers are colossal. You know, a five percent of unvaccinated old people in Hong Kong is perhaps a few thousand, but in China, it's, it's tens of millions, and mm -hmm. that's why they have to be incredibly careful. You know, I can't possibly blame them. It's the whale effect. You know, a small percent of a whale is a hell of a lot of fish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good uh, a good point. A good quote to leave. <laughs> Actually, it's trademarked. Okay, so be very careful. <laughs> okay, trademark Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisor. You also heard Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Times 8.24 on the phone from Mumbai, India, is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Uh, well, we've been talking about some of the regional um, economies here in uh, in China, also in Southeast Asia. What about India? There, there was a, actually a very good article um, in the FT earlier this week, which was sort of predicting a coming decade of, of outperformance for India, forecasting that India is going to be the third largest economy by 2027 and GDP more than doubling um, over the next 10 years. What, is that a sort of a sense also, Toby, that you're getting in India itself? that really some good times are coming for the, the Indian economy? Yeah, I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, there are more structural tailwinds for the Indian economy than headwinds, notwithstanding in the short term there are many headwinds of inflation, uh, you know, weaker export uh, demand uh, from outside of India, continued, uh, uh, you know, uh, microeconomic reform required within the country. But overall, if you look at the political environment, you look at the economic environment, uh, the technological uh, development in terms of digitalization, um, these factors are all very positive and and those reflections of the six and a half percent versus the three and a half percent running growth rate vis mm. the China and India is pretty clear uh, that it's a positive story. Um, but uh, as with most things, the devil's in the detail and it, it won't be a smooth ride of growth. It'll be bumpy like, uh, like most emerging economies. Of course, it's hard not to compare India uh, with, with China and also maybe where China was um, a, a couple of decades ago. But nevertheless, I'll do it anyway. I mean, China, India does have a, a very growth-friendly uh, sort of policy mix, doesn't it? it? It's really shifting away from redistribution and, and towards boosting um, investments, boosting job creation, whereas China's policy is actually 100 degrees the opposite at the moment. 
Yeah, it's got a, a very different dynamics, and I think it'd be wary to, to compare them like for like in terms of their journey of economic development. I think it'd be very different. And one of the key aspects of difference will be the way in which India's economy uh, expands more more in a new economy of digitalization. So mm. rather than heavy manufacturing, uh, it'd be more um, India driving through digital economy, which is a huge advantage. There's effectively India able to jump the shark, not only having to reinvest in heavy manufacturing capability, notwithstanding that India needs to build its manufacturing exports. Its service export sector is very good, but its manufacturing exports uh, sector still is fairly benign and that needs to develop. But overall, um, you've got a government that, uh, at least at the federal level, that's stable uh, and in power, and that's likely going to help continue to drive the type of reform we've seen over the last uh, seven or eight years. India's always had a bit of a reputation as as being a closed uh, sort of market and and difficult um, to invest in. But is it now... um, doing its best to try and attract overseas investment and, and to boost manufacturing exports and basically to engage um, with the West, whereas, you know, at the moment we're seeing China and the West uh, decoupling. Yeah, I think it, it's multi-layered. This, uh, if you look at the uh, ease of doing business index, which is World Bank's uh, uh, index, uh, India's improved from, let's say, 142nd in the world in 2014 to 63rd. But 63rd for, for a large economy is still quite low in terms of easy doing business. There's a lot of work in terms of reform around tax regulatory environment and there is an understanding of the government and the country that uh, foreign capital is needed uh, uh, in order to achieve growth ambitions. So it's not, uh, I wouldn't say it's accelerated to the extent that you would like to see it potentially as a foreign investor. There's no doubt that uh, this is the direction the Indian government uh, uh, see as essential to ensure that there's foreign capital continuing to develop the economy, along with obviously the development of uh, domestic capital sources. So um, it's there, it's improving, but there's still a long way to go. And of course, you've got a big advantage that you've actually got quite a young population, haven't you? India's median age is 11 years younger uh, than China's. So if you have a young population that's able to propel economic growth much more uh, robustly than an older one is. Yeah, so from a structural perspective, the dependency ratio is very much in India's favour over the next uh, couple of decades. And that's in a relative sense to pretty much every other economy in the world that's large. Uh, All the Western uh, economies and even China now, dependency ratios have shifted. India has a very good dynamic. Um, It still has a lot of work to to ensure that we get to the right level of formalisation of the labour force. There's still a long way to go there. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, getting enough good, well-paying jobs that create wealth for Indians is going to be the challenge for the government. Um, there are still many, many, many people uh, who aren't benefiting from uh, economic growth to the extent that they should. Now, one other piece of news out about India, Russia's become India's top oil supplier because of uh, Western sanctions. Prior to the war, New Delhi imported just 2% of its oil from Moscow. Uh, By September, that number's jumped to 23%. It seems that this is a a big boost, isn't it, for for India's finances and its economy? Well, it certainly helps, and I think the foreign minister uh, of India has been very clear to say that, you know, to take advantage of the prices uh, because uh, India needs oil. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's an importer of oil, so it doesn't really have a choice as to, um, you know, be able to produce domestically. So, um, practically speaking, Russian oil is uh, available to them. Um, they've maintained a, ne- a neutral stance politically, which I think has been, um, the stance has been very consistent from India. Um, uh, but yes, it certainly will help them being able to access uh, oil at the uh, at the price, 
Uh, and at the same time, they'll try to balance that with the geopolitical tension that, that derives. So I think it's a, it's a balancing act for India. They certainly like to maintain themselves as a, as a neutral party, and notwithstanding that they'll continue to access uh, Russian oil where, at the price it can get. Okay, Toby, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning and this week in Australia. Uh, the SX200 up 2.6%. Japan, the Nikkei 225 up 2.7%. In South Korea, the Cosby is up uh, almost 3%. And here in Hong Kong, looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 760 points or so at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back on Monday morning. Have a great weekend in the meantime. Stay tuned. Back chat's coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, cloudy in the morning, mainly fine during the day. Uh, the maximum temperature is going to be about 28 degrees and then the outlook is for sunny periods in the next few days. It's going to be hot during the day on Sunday, already 24 degrees and 77% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. Here's Tom Warden with the half-hour news. Thanks, Peter. RTHK understands that police have made five arrests this morning in connection to their investigation of an accident at a concert by the band Mirror. Two dancers were seriously injured when a big screen fell onto the stage at the gig at the Coliseum in Hong Hong in July. It's understood four men and one woman connected to contractors working on the event have been arrested. Police say they've arrested eight men on suspicion of scamming people out of a total of 2.7 million Hong Kong dollars by sending them phishing messages. Officers said the alleged syndicate members pretending to be courier company staff had sent a large number of text messages to random people in the last three months asking for their credit card details. The con men then allegedly used the details to buy mobile phones, vouchers and other items suitable for resale. The head of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee says the country's financial watchdogs must investigate the collapse of the cryptocurrency trading firm FTX. Sherrod Brown said consumers could not be protected and the stability of the banking system guaranteed unless it was clear what abuses and misconduct took place at the company. The BBC's Michelle Fleury explains what went wrong. This is the earthquake that is rocking the cryptocurrency world. Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as he's known in crypto circles, runs FTX, which is essentially a marketplace where people can buy and sell their holdings in cryptos. What happened was a sudden departure of many investors from that market, plus a huge sell-off of its own cryptocurrency, triggered the implosion of FTX. And it sent the crypto market as a whole into a meltdown this week. The company's CEO said that his key priority now is doing right by users whose trades on the platform are currently frozen, so their money is frozen. France has said it will allow a ship carrying 200 migrants to dock at the port city of Toulon and warned Italy of extremely serious consequences for not allowing the passengers to disembark there. The Ocean Viking rescued its passengers from the Mediterranean, taking them initially to Italy, where the government refused the migrants' leave to disembark. France's interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, called Italy's actions incomprehensible as the ship had been in its rescue zone. He said France would take appropriate measures as a result. It is obvious that with immediate effect, France is suspending all relocations of the 3,500 refugees currently in Italy and is calling on all the other participants in the European mechanism, notably Germany, to do the same. 
France will take measures to strengthen controls at our internal borders with Italy. It will also make its own conclusions about the Italian attitude to other aspects of our bilateral relationship. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Danny Gittings. On today's program, we're talking about Hong Kong's plans to go big on mega events. In the wake of the success of the Rugby Sevens tournament last weekend, Hong Kong's biggest international outdoor music festival, A Clock and Flap, confirmed that it'll return in March 